Hello and welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piscor. Super excited to introduce Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird here, continuing their journey through the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as we look at issue number five. Let's, uh, let's take a look at uh, TMNT number five. Let's, let's keep this conversation going with uh, Kevin Eastman and P Peter Laird. But uh, before we jump mm -hmm. into the issue, uh, so curious if you guys have ever seen this kind of thing. Are you are you, are you familiar with the the Japanese culture of doujinshi comics? Do you know the deal about doujinshi? You might want to you might want to show our like our screen on your on your computer. Kind of big yep. to see this stuff. Uh, so what doujinshi is? It's they have these co conventions that are with fan made comics, mm. and because yeah. the Jap like because Japan. They do things a little differently, and their comics culture is huge. Like the conventions that do these doujinshis, we have friends that were just at the last one during uh, Christmas. 35,000 people have tables at this festival. Mm. It's about 700,000 people show up. It's three times San Diego Comic-Con wow. for these like gray area bootleg mm. comics, and it's all... They take existing properties and kind of... They don't even do their own spin. It's even more kind of... Uh, esoteric than that because it's all um the most popular genre is called bl which stands for boys love and the turtles mm. seem to be they didn't get the memo that the turtles are brothers <laughs> so you'll always see the turtles in a in an embrace or mm -hmm. uh you know at the most uh you know at the most timid but then you got these uh, r18 ones where you do see turtles in action in ways that eastman and laird have never foresaw or never realized on on a page but uh well, whenever... none of you ever seen uh, <laughs> yeah we did pretty, we did. pretty, pretty vanilla <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah just wanted to show you guys like there is a wide plethora of this stuff and and <laughs> okay <laughs> there is uh and it's not technically illegal by by their copyright laws because they don't technically sell the comic it's another one of those weird gray area things where you have to donate to the artist and you're paying for printing cost is like how it works and they have everything they have they have batman they have watchmen but then they have like every japanese property too and and just by being turtle fans like i happened upon their turtles doujinshi section and just had to share some of this well, the, um... crazy stuff with you well, no, what's interesting is um, I've done um, been to Japan a bunch of times and I've done some work over there and and uh, um, and, and the best of my acknowledgement and, and I've seen the, the comic culture and the different kinds of things that they do, including these kinds of comics, um, this kind of really weird sort of gray zone of copyright infringement. But it was um, I remember I was working on a on a project in, um, in not I don't want to digress yeah. much. It's kind of silly, um, but it's like. There's a movie called um, with Bill Murray called Lost in Translation. Oh yeah, I don't know if you ever saw it. But sure. there's a scene where he's there because he's a famous movie actor, and he's there to um, do a a quick promotion for Centauri whiskey. And so, so he'd be this he'd do this thing where he'd go, you know, da 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 Centauri, and then then would cut to you know he's got his translator. Then would cut to this group of producers and stuff, and they'd be like talking in Japanese to each other like for like a minute which on film is like forever and it's in real life it's a forever 
you know, da, 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 <laughs> I know where this and is going. Go, and then they come back and go, uh, the directors say more intense. <laughs> yeah. And Bill Murray was like, wait, what? You guys parked for five minutes and that's all he said was just more intense? <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, what the, you know, WTF? Mm-hmm. And it was, um, and so we, I had a lot of meetings there where um, it would be something similar. Um, and it was very challenging. But I also know when Peter and I, because um, a lot of times people would say, in the early days of some of the success of the animated shows and, and toys, uh, a question had come up um, a, a number of times that saying like, well, you know, martial arts and all this, you know, stuff, it must, you guys must be hugely popular in Japan. And, you know, as we found out, and as I found out even more later, some of the people I actually talked to that were around when um, the turtles were being licensed over there, they did, obtain a license there. They were there for a period of time and, and, and a relatively short period of time, say a couple of years at the most, but they kind of came in and faded out. But the problem that they had was ninjas are not um, a, a good thing and not a, you know, the, the, the biggest kind of hoodwink or thing that we played is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and this whole art of ninjutsu. They were murderers. So the, the Japanese would refer to it as like Teenage Mutant Murdering Turtles. Wow. What? I don't understand why this is popular. And we're like, well, you know, ninjutsu, out of ninjutsu. And they say, no, these were assassins for hire that would kill their money, their mother for a couple of coins, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, and so, um, again, I promise not to digress too much, but I'm still carrying on. But it was just, it was funny. So when they started adapting some of the original comics, I'm, you probably still have some, Pete. I have some. But they, they wouldn't just reprint the Mirage comics and they wouldn't reprint the Archie comics. They redrew them in a manga style um, mm. that was more acceptable to their audience, and and we would get some of these in, and I would look at them and go like, you know, these these, you know, short, you know, comic perspective, like these two and a half foot tall little turtles that would be like ah, and uh, <laughs> it was just so interesting their take on it. Right up until the limited series, um, PT, remember it was like a five part animated series they did where they turned them into robots, like manga fighters, oh, right? Yeah. I vaguely recall that. Yeah, it was, it was nutty. It was something that I think Playmates did a couple of the toys based on it, but it was. They said the cartoon wasn't working the way it is, so they did this series where they changed them into, you know, kind of Transformers, um, but they were robots. When st- <laughs> I don't think it's ever aired here anywhere, but it's really funny. So anyway, but, um, you know, and actually, one more quick thing, and you'll find this funny. I hope Pete will find this funny too. Is uh. The one and only time I've been to Russia many years ago for a comic convention. And so we went there um, and these fans, um, I don't speak Russian, they don't speak English in most cases. So we ended up giving lots of hugs and people were really emotional. They were such huge turtle fans. Our lines were around the building, but they would bring up these books that to have a sign, these little hardcover kind of novel styles books, um, digest size books. Um, and the first one they brought up was Turtles versus Batman. And I was like, <laughs> wait, what? And it was mostly prose with illustrations. And the next one was like turtles versus alien and then all similar. And so I was asking the translator, I said, these are, these are crazy. And then in the publication date was like the early nineties. And he said, well, we could never get the rights to him back in the day. So we just made up our own stories. And so they were totally pirated. They were totally bootlegged, bootlegged. And so if they wanted to do turtles versus Batman, they did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, but they still love the turtles. Whatever the adaptation they did at that time, we still had huge turtle fans there. So anyway, 
It's amazing. On to issue five. The videos are brought to you by the books that we make, but uh, the videos are also uh, sustained by uh, the Patreon support at uh, our various levels. You can hit the description in uh, the below this video to see what could suit your needs. And uh, depending on your level of support, you're seeing us record uh, our entire sessions before anybody else and you're getting uh, videos before anybody else does. Uh, completely mitigates the kayfabe effect, but we do have books out in the wild and books that are forthcoming. Jimmy, what do you have? Hulk Grand Design, Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive, and The Plain Janes are all of my books that are in print and available now. My next book, Street Angel, Princess of Poverty will be out in May from Image Comics. You can start pre-ordering that now. It's completely different comics than Deadly Squirrel Live and will complete the Street Angel set. Uh, coming in May, uh, Red Room Crypto Killers issue one. Printed up the cover right there, man. Uh, that's your regular cover. You guys have been asking about uh, sketch covers. So we're going to put one of those out for uh, Red Room Crypto's Killers issue number one coming out in May. There are two existing trade paperbacks of that out there. Uh, here's the cover for issue two. Your store might be able to sell, to uh, offer you that one right now. A lot of people have been asking, man, is Jimmy going to do a variant for issue one? Let me show you guys just a little a little glimpse of uh, <laughs> Jimmy's cover, man. We'll, we'll announce that at a, at a later date, but some of you guys know what that is, man. Two existing trade paperbacks of Red Room out there right now, Antisocial Network and uh, Trigger Warnings. Four volumes, Hip Hop Family Tree, celebrating its 10-year anniversary. Hit my link in the description below, man. Like, I got an announcement uh, about that in, in the not-too-far uh, future. Three volumes, X-Men Grand Design and WYSIWYG are out there in the wild right now. We thank you guys so much for supporting our books. We thank you so much for supporting the channel through the Patreon. Now that we're done paying the bills, let's get back to Kevin and Peter. Can you guys... Uh, well, first off, um, Jimmy and I, we have a theory that... Uh, that this is where Levine starts to do the lettering uh, because it's the same lettering that's used like in the in the first comic. Can, can I see the first comics joint real quick? Uh, it's the same lettering style. Uh, mm -hmm. Steve Levine is mentioned in the book here, but uh, it's a different hand style. Like this is a more confident Steve Levine. Like all these other pages has a more italic view. He's using uh, bolds and things. Uh, mm -hmm. The lettering in this version is more prototypical the he doesn't have quite full command of his aims guide some some lines are a little bit bigger the spacing is a little bit uh, off it's it's this is this is our theory that that uh steve levine jumps on his letterer around well, I would, around here. i would say two things really quick is uh one is that um i think you're 100 percent right and also i graduated from the same high school as steve levine so luckily we had somebody like peter who could actually spell <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> peter would do all the final the final scripting the final dialogue stuff before it would be lettered but um yeah steve and i um were a couple of the guys that didn't really pay attention in english the way we should have so thankfully pete was um, um <laughs> the one doing the final uh scripting and editing on those things it was so yeah. steve would be the first uh extra person that you guys add to the team is that right correct how does that, how do you figure that part out? Do you decide you just need a letter? Was Steve doing other stuff? Like, how does that come about that he joins you? I think it was, you know, well, I don't know what you remember. You know, tell me what you remember, Pete, but I, I feel like there was, there were a couple things like um, we were packing and shipping. Um, we were doing more mail order. We were doing stuff. And, and Steve was an artist. I We went, uh, um, I remember, you know, we were in the same art classes. That's where I got to know him in Westbrook. And, um, 
he would still do coloring and you know he so he was an artist on his own um big don martin fan um but and i had mentioned that how much i was um how time consuming the lettering was and uh and how bad i was at it and so i i might have mentioned like hey so if you can learn how to letter it was a combination of a, a couple of things um i guess that uh, um you know, yeah, as I recall, you, you you didn't really ever love doing the lettering. You, you did it, and you did it well, but you know you didn't really love it. And so getting Steve to pick up that ball and roll, run with it was a, a good thing for you. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was uh, he just, but yeah, he was officially the first employee and uh, um, moved down to Sharon, Connecticut, I think initially, and that's where we uh, um, did a, a a great number of things like making a homemade film called Vampire Dinosaurs from Hell and a few other things that was um, quite fantastic. Never made the big screen, but it's a good idea. <laughs> when you guys first collaborated, even on, on issue one, uh, behind the scenes, did you guys form some kind of partnership LLC kind of thing to keep all that stuff straight? Or when does that come into play so that you can have an employee and have a pool of money to, to pay a guy? Well, as I recall, we, we didn't really dot all those I's and cross all those T's until we moved to Northampton. Yeah. Um, and we got lawyers involved and had an in-house accountant. And, uh, you know, that's when we started to really pay attention to that stuff. Out of necessity and, you know, I can't even remember how we paid Pete. It might have just been a, you know, but I know we didn't. It, was, it wasn't anything official like Pete. Just to repeat what he said, it was once we get back to Northampton and things continued to grow as a business and company, we had to bring, we had to hire other people that it was uh, something that we, you know, and that was probably 86, 87 before we actually had, you know, a, a full-time, you know, like Cheryl Prindle, I think was the, the first right. maybe official um, employee. Office yeah, office person. So, Do yeah. you guys have your issue fives on you? Um, can you tell us what the Indicia date is? Uh I've only got to collect it. The cover is dated 1985. Um, I know it was the first issue that we did a color cover and then in comic book size. That, I was um, going to ask that also if this was the first comic book size guy. Yep. It says copyright 1985. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of the things that we know in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles lore was that Fugitoid was a concept you guys were working on before TMNT. Uh, so Correct. tell us about Fugitoid. Well, it was a, a, a story, as you just pointed out, that we worked on before the Turtles. Um, and we, I think we actually sent it out, we were doing it in, I think, five-page chapters, if I remember remembering correctly. Um, and we did send it out to different comics companies to see if they were interested. Nobody was interested. We got a bunch of rejection letters. But go ahead. No, I said we got a, a bunch of rejection letters to add to the bunch of rejection letters we already had. For everything. <laughs> no. um, actually, I want to say two things. One, Fugitoid was Pete's idea, and I loved it. It was uh, He was a huge fan of robots, and uh, he actually showed me some early drawings of this um, wonderful Robin Hood concept called Tuck of Sherwood that he was working on developing years ago that was kind of a robot version of a Robin Hood kind of thing. But it was Pete's original concept to do this, um, story and i loved it but was also a pete idea um because we were starting to do um we had done a few mini comics ourselves and other things but the format of the um 
of, of uh, the Fugitory was done in a way that was um, something you called a poster comics, which was a five-page story, and the last page would be a full-page spread. So if you look at those early Fugitoids, you see all the setups of uh, every title page has the logo and credits, um, which if you did it on, say, a I don't know the exact proportions, but like a 17 by 22 whatever sheet of paper, and if you printed it both sides, um, you could kind of fold it over and then fold it again. So you would have this page one would have that, and then you open it up to the two middle pages, and then the fourth page would be on the back, but then you would open up the whole thing for a poster. That would be the final fifth page. Um, and, and it was, uh, and I've only seen, um, uh, I've got a, I've got a set of them here, the original. I think we only did, as prototypes, I think we only did like four, um, four of them, I think. Um, but I've only seen one other set out there online. Um, somebody had on eBay or something years ago that was uh, mm. those original poster concept concept but uh um and then it was something that we loved this character i love this idea of um the fugitoid both peter and i did of course and so when we saw an opportunity to bring him into the turtle universe we were it was it was no question we we wanted him in it's fantastic man like really putting the imagination on display on this issue and you know what i would be remiss if i didn't bring this up i was holding the audience accountable and i told and i told jimmy to hold me accountable for 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 this Uh, peter when we've talked to you the very first time uh, and we did the shoot interview with you and you said uh, we were talking about ownership of turtles being approached by people sending out samples and submissions. This is all jogging the memory. And you said something about, you know, if somebody would have come along early on and offered Kevin and I a hundred thousand dollars or something, it would have been something that we would have had to have thought about. And then you said, I have a story to go along with that. And I never asked you all these other times we chatted and I hope that that jogs some sort of memory. I think it has to do with somebody making you guys an offer early on that. Well, yeah, actually it was an interesting thing uh, that happened while we're in Connecticut, while we were in Sharon, Connecticut. Um, We actually got uh, approached by Peter David, who was one of the more well-known writers at Marvel. I think we saw him at a convention or something. And, you know, we chatted with him and basically talked business and so forth. And then he got back in touch with us and and said that he had, he had talked to Archie Goodwin at Marvel. And they were interested in possibly taking on the Turtles as an epic comic book. Um, do you remember this, Kev? 100%, like, like yesterday, because I remember the... Us, Peter David, the conversation started with uh, Peter David giving us a ride back from the convention to the hotel because we had to stop at a convenience store because he liked he liked ho hos, <laughs> so we had to stop and get his ho hos. Hard to imagine like a version of yodels or something. But he also they had a spinner rack there, and I bought one of his comics off the rack. It was funny because I saw one he had just written. He was writing the Hulk at that time, and he was very enthusiastic that um, he'd never seen somebody actually buy one of his comics. But uh, but as you said, Pete, yeah, he he, he said the. Uh, he talked to Archie and um, um, about maybe bringing the turtles into to Marvel as a as a possible comic. So go ahead. Yeah. So uh, we actually uh, took a train down to New York City and um, met uh, at Archie Goodwin and uh, Peter David was there too. And um, they, they took us out to lunch. 
And it was a bit awkward because Archie said to us, so what, what, what do you want? How did this go? Um, so what can we do for you? And, and Kevin and I looked at each other and, and, and we were like, well, well, Peter said that you're interested in publishing the turtles as an epic book. And, and it was a bit of an awkward couple of minutes there. But um, eventually we, we basically moved on with the conversation and um, Archie was a real nice guy. We really enjoyed talk, talking with him. And he gave us kind of a boilerplate contract that for us to look at. And we went back to Sharon and we looked carefully at the contract. And as it, as it was written, we would have had to have an editor overseeing our work. We would get paid about half what we were making for the comic books that we were publishing. And we would have to we would have to have given up fifty percent of the licensing revenue that the property could generate, and we we looked it over and thought about it for a while, and then realized, no way, you know, let's just keep doing what we're doing. Yep. No, that's that's exactly right. It was one of those because uh, you know, look, Pete, you know, for growing up, you, you know, you had a. a you know, a dream of working for DC Comics or being part of the Marvel bullpen or mm -hmm. in drawing, and and so when, when the opportunity, the, the 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 young person inside you sort of you know jumped up and said, "Oh my goodness, this is this is exciting," um, you know, to have this opportunity and the conversation, everything went exactly as Pete said. And when we finally looked at it, we said, "You know, man, we're pretty lucky <laughs> that we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it because we'd also had a had a pretty." decent perspective on um things that were going on in the comic market at that time were uh and um i believe this is around the time that there were a lot of artists really um which is part of why archie started epic comics um but a lot of uh, artists wanting to protect their rights and their creation and you know and helping defend those who the the, the giants we stood on the shoulders of you know guys like you know, Jack, um, you know, that were um, creator slash co-creator of most of the Marvel Universe and, and was not able to profit from uh, have any control over characters that he either created or co-created. And and even to the point where um, um, they weren't giving him his artwork back and things like that. Was, it was just, and, you know, we had had a conversation with Jack about it a time or two, and it was just one of those, like, he's like, well... You know, you know, that's that's the, it was the nature of the business at the time, and that's how we saw, we knew what we were getting into, and you know, he was one of those architects and one of those things. But it was one of uh, so we, it was sort of the reality landed right where it should have, where we were aware enough and uh, and careful enough, and then knew that we were lucky enough to be doing um, what we wanted to do with our with our characters because it wasn't more than a a year or two later we were having very serious conversations uh, that Mark Friedman brought to the table to do other things with our characters that we had control over. Uh, this is not to say that we didn't, uh, for at least a few minutes, think, wow, this might be really cool to have our book published by Marvel Comics. 100%. Uh, it, it just didn't add up. Just to have context, uh, how many Turtle Comics were out there? Like, how many issues? Like, where, where were you guys at uh, in your sort of journey with the turtles at this point because we obviously we we know the the elf quest epic comic like that is a thing that happened so i imagine it's maybe around that same period yeah i, I have a feeling that it was around issue five or six 
but I, I could be wrong about that. I, yeah. I think you're spot on right, yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing whenever uh, Marvel and Epic are doing that, because like Ed said, ElfQuest is one that we all see. You know, they get Sergio Aragonis to bring Gru over there after, right. I guess, Pacific, you know, whatever happens to Pacific. Um, there's stories about Dave that, that, you know, there were conversations with Dave Sim and Cerebus around that time. Yeah, you would see so, him doing work in Epic Illustrated and stuff. Yeah, in interesting, interesting moment there in Marvel history and Turtles history, for that matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for, for, for that piece, man. I, it was, it was on, every time we stopped the recording, I'm like, I know yes. what I forgot. I forgot. So thank you guys so much for, for that, that glimpse into the whole process. Um do you remember figuring stuff out, like how to draw nunchucks? Because it's one of those things that I love how they look, but having tried to draw them, there's a lot of ways to do them wrong. Yeah, that, that spinning nunchuck thing is something that I've never quite gotten down very well. So when I, when I draw them, they're typically static. You know, posed like in the, 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 the middle of a strike or something. Like we have that. one Laird one and one Eastman <laughs> one on 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 uh, one turtle here. It was exactly, and I think that you know, and even it changed from. Um, no, I was just saying, I'm the same way. It was like this, the 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 spinning one because you want to feel the action of it. But I, you know, ever since I can remember, it's always been a static pose with the nunchuck looking like it's about to hit him in the head, no matter what. <laughs> um, but the um, but I think. And I'm not sure where it transitioned, but initially we, the linkage was a chain, right, Pete? Because we, we had connected with a chain. Maybe it changed later, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure when, but yeah, it was. Um, so not only drawing the nunchuck, but then drawing the, the chain linkage for it was like, you know, just so. Uh, not easy. Was was, was Fugitoid the first non-TMNT Mir Mirage book? Uh, it was it was the first thing that Kevin and I really seriously put together other than a couple of small things that we worked on together just to see how it would work, you know, our styles meshing and so forth. Yeah, let, let me let me uh, rephrase, man. Uh, we're, we're here at issue five of Ninja Turtles, and, and Fugitoid's introduced, and there will be a Fugitoid published comic that it was your earlier work, but it comes out later, you know, to the yeah. shops and stuff. Yeah. Uh, is, is that the first book that is like a non Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles book that Mirage Studios publishes. Uh, yeah, I believe it was. Yep. Cause uh, the, the future was definitely created before turtles. Yeah. Um, we'd worked on it before. Um, and like I mentioned the format structure, if you see the first part of the oversized fugitoid book, it was almost magazine size. Cause that's the way we did the pages. Right. But then the last part of the fugitoid book, we'd already decided we were going to, and we'd come up with a plan to bring the Fugitoid into the Mirage universe. So the last half, I believe, um, without it in front of me, uh, the last part of the Fugitoid was was specific pages set up to link those two worlds. And and the idea being that would um, bring him in for this specific um, adventure and out of space, and then and then kept him. You know, um, so he was fully he was fully so it was, a, it was an early idea. He was fully integrated into our universe. This is yeah. where the imagination is fully on display because we, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, man. We're in the alien planet and you guys get to stretch your chops with, with, uh, architecture, vehicles, characters. It's fantastic. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to throw something out here that I don't know if anybody knows, but in the, in the Fugitoid world, I believe they're on an island called Peblak, <laughs> P-E-B-L-A-K. 
and that's our initials together. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah, exactly what it was. It was Peblack. It was uh, you know, that's our initials to name the town. And oh my god, it's funny because I, I think there was at some point, not to jump ahead, but it, when you look at the page that you're showing on uh, on the left, is the turtles sort of telling a bit of their past, uh, and then on the right is the fugitive telling about his origin, his past. So that's what we brought them together. But I think in later issues, there were a number of times when the fugitoid origin would come up and would be like, Oh, do we have to tell this origin again? Cause it was so long. <laughs> we loved it, but it was like, you know, so I think we came up with a little bit of shorthand, but it was, uh, it's funny, but, uh, but yeah, that's a great spread. Cause it was really, that was, that was that spread right there. officially links the two worlds. And, and once again, it's another one of those great storytelling instincts because somebody might happen upon issue five, man. They, they like probably even at this point, Ninja Turtles one was hundred dollar comic or something. So you got to You got to catch the people up to speed and you guys do that. Great. And, and you're in and out. You know, you got two montage sequences. Now let's get on with the adventure. Yep. That's the rest of it. So. I love this transition of like human skull robots. It's a Cro-Magnum <laughs> stage, man. You got You got to get there from there. It's comic book science, bro. Absolutely. <laughs> and, so, uh, I'd like to throw in here, um, as Kevin mentioned earlier, I can't remember when exactly, but that the Fugitoid design was something that I came up with. And I just want to pay homage to the man who inspired that design, Russ Manning. Yeah, mm. for sure. Uh, was a huge influence on me, especially in terms of drawing robots, because I, I absolutely loved what he did with Magnus Robot Fighter. Just brilliant stuff. It's yeah, it was like those 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 issues. I have those. Um, I think it was Gold Key. Was it Gold mm -hmm. Key that did those? Yeah, yeah with Gold Key because they did. Uh, they'd always do those beautifully painted covers for like Magnus Robot Fighter and Turok, Son of Stone, and a few other ones. I I I, I adored those, but yeah, those Magnus yeah. ones were, were great. Yeah, and like you know, this is you know season two of the of the uh, action figures, and they they abided by your designs, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, uh, the, the imagination that you guys put down on these pages, playmates translated that stuff pretty much one for one. Triceratons as well, you know, like that's, that's that early, you know, that's, that's my sweet spot. You guys hit the Piscor household at the perfect time because I have a brother three years younger and then a sister six years younger. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I aged out, you know, two, three years of turtles figures now my brother's inheriting the toys and keeping up, and then my sister, man. So you, you hit us all. Like I was, those boys born in '82 with like younger siblings. Mm. Yeah, we're we're the ones that had the run for sure. Mm. And a triceratops well, right um, there. What I love is uh, when we need to come up with a an evil race and you know, sort of a um, not the empire, but you know, an evil, uh, you know, a menace to the universe that was taking over. Pete's love of dinosaurs came into play in a big way, uh, and uh, Triceratops being is one of his favorites. And uh, when he suggested, you know, a design for these characters, and 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 the, come up with the the whole design of the Triceratops was just like it was just perfect because it was scary and it was big and it was menacing. It was like you know these moving buildings with horns and just you know you just it just brought back every memory of every ray harryhausen movie or you know those old things of uh triceratops fighting um you know t-rexes and stuff but yeah that was what a wonderful creation for uh um for for 
bad guys. And, and it's again, you know, not to um, carry on about it too much, but I love that almost every version of the turtles, but since that's been told since Peter and I did those original 15 issues has included those characters um, mm. adapted in some fashion. Um, right right into the 2012 series, which was did some wonderfully interesting versions of turtles and races. They fugitory plays a major role and Casey and April. And of course uh, the Triceratons and, you know, just, it's just fantastic that that was um, that foundation is um, yeah. That's great. Well, uh, let me ask you a- this, Kevin, Kevin, because that, you know, that's a, that's a built-in skill that, that Peter has, you know, uh, did you have to, teach yourself on the fly to draw freaking t- triceratopses or did you say peter you draw these damn things i'll do some inking i still can't draw them it's like you know <laughs> it's, like, it's tough because it's like um it was one of those um it was just getting the horns right and yeah even when i'm asked to do sketches for them today it was like because if the because you know as we the design that you know p came up with and what to make them work so you want to them to be able to emote and act so you want to be able to see their their mouth move in different positions um and then but when you know the, you know the horns as you sort of draw them this way or this way um or doing different things it's, it was i was always i would always have trouble with the perspective perspectives it'd be like <laughs> you're not the only one <laughs> uh it's no um, secret man we we got we got a moss Eisley's kind of cantina sequence here uh with yeah. all that's required to make that happen, man. Yeah. I mean, you got like a kind of Han Solo-ish type person. I see a Cerebus the Ordvork back there, but uh, this has to be one of those panels where if you guys are each putting in 50% contribution, it has to be, it has to be a ball. Cause you could, you, you almost could do no wrong with your oh, designs. Absolutely. It was a, it was a definitely a, it was definitely a pretty epic love poem to all things Star Wars and George Lucas and, and I think we had to be careful enough to try to not get sued. <laughs> um, but it was. It's like actually, if you look at the um, the cover that's Pete's holding up, it's like if you look in the on the front lower right, it's it's the medical robot from right. from Luke in <laughs> yeah the two one B medic droid. <laughs> yeah, it's a medic droid. And then you look at some of the guns, and I I think I was using some of the. Star Wars action figure toys as sort of reference. Yeah, for especially this one right, right here. Yeah, and I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna blow up an image of that so that we can look real, real clearly <laughs> on the on the uh, on the channel when we while we talk about that. And there's even like little illusions, like, hey, there goes some guy over there. It looks like they could help when they talk about their exact needs. Which are the Luke Skywalker Obi Wan needs? Like, we yeah. need somebody at the spaceport to take us somewhere. Yeah, I, just just I, I don't know if I ever saw this before, but. This poor guy is getting his head blown apart. He's <laughs> <laughs> getting color. I didn't see that. Oh my god, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, he, that's 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 a wound that won't heal unless he's a you know an android. I don't know. But the, uh, <laughs> um, but you're right. We definitely had a ton of fun doing those, those that scene. This is this is a ball of a comic, man. Aliens, robots, dinosaurs. High technology, was, and that was the, the the wonderful part of the freedom is like we didn't have to draw those same New York City buildings and stuff like that mm-hmm. as as a setup and stuff that we, you know, and and Pete could really shine with you know just that the car design, um, like which is like I always love you know Pete mentioned the Fantastic Four and I always loved the flying car that the Fantastic Four had so we we get this kind of 
old new technology with a flying car and certainly the um the uh flying sort of jetpack oh, suits that the, yeah. the harnesses that the triceratons had were fantastic and they actually made didn't um i still have my little lead figurines of yeah. um um Force made of those those are yeah, they did a really nice job. I, I wish that Playmates had ever had done a full-size toy version of it. That, would, that could have been really fun. Yeah, it really would have, yeah. When yeah, you would, would design uh, these kind of vehicles where you got to see them in multiple angles, would you, would you start from, you know, the chassis of some sort of toy model kit, or did you have something laying around that you could look at in 3D, or is it all straight from the imagination? I, I believe it's straight from the imagination. Yep. Yeah, so like for that one, I remember Pete did a kind of a model sheet which had a couple of different views from it, so we could, um, so we could look at it, so that when we, you know, because we were again passing, still passing the pages back and forth, so that um, for the penciling and for for the inking, we we could keep it on model. Um, yep. And on the the cartoon, they would sort of adopt some of this stuff uh, with the uh, the characters, the neutrinos that would show up towards the end of each season, uh, and they would have have these kind of space cadillacs and things <laughs> yeah, i love the neutrino as kids like we all we all were uh, jealous of them because we wanted to be hanging out with the ninja turtles and we hated that there were these other kids that got to so it was like <laughs> man f the neutrinos but it was just out of jealousy <laughs> yeah i think the neutrinos was that was one of the because originally produced with partnership with playmates and uh, uh more call me wolf and and um the partnership was uh, the the first five episodes. The hot rotting teenagers from Dimension X, I believe, were, were that was one of the first five, right, Pete? Yeah. You, uh, you know, I can't recall. I've, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was I love because a uh, NECA as a toy company is um, has done some really wonderful versions of all the turtles, um, and and not only the 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 movie sets and uh, they're doing a whole line of Mirage based. Um, action figures but they did a whole line on the on the cartoon series and their version of the neutrino i mean their version of any of the cartoon characters that they put um that they put out is like they walked right out of the tv screen into um into your into the toy box into your toy show they're really good good work beautiful work yeah yeah amazing one of the things that strikes me going back through these comics is how much it feels like they're built to be a cartoon That's or to be yeah, toys. Totally. And is that something that you guys thought about? Like, we've talked a lot about, you know, underground comics and Jack Kirby comics as being an influence. But were you guys thinking along the lines of, like, cartoons that you grew up with or, you know, toys that, that you grew up with? Were those things that were informing some of what you were coming up with here? Uh, probably. I would say Probably. I mean, the uh, the Triceratops dinosaur is something that I, I have loved since I was a little kid. And uh, I think that was a, a major part in uh, developing those characters. Um, and Kevin and I, at, at the time we were working on these, were also into toys. And we would make toy trips to uh, like Toys R Us and Toy, toy Works and Child World and stuff like that. And look for interesting toy figures. Yeah. Um, it was a good oh. era in those eighties. Yeah. No, that was. No, I think it was. You know, it's sort of. Um, you know, there's an old saying. I guess that you know every artist is a thief. Um, but it's a. But at the same time, um, 
you know, the, the idea that how could you not be influenced at not only those things you grew up on, but the things that surround you and the genres and, and the bits and pieces. And, and I feel like, you know, um, we were putting in stuff in the issues that we really, really liked. And we, we would, were definitely inspired. And there was definitely some, in some cases, stronger influences than others, but we were definitely inspired, but there was, we tried to make it, you know, whether it was, you know, as original as possible, you know, I, I mean, like I said, the, 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 the idea of, you know, these space villains being triceratops was, was Pete's. It was, you know, there was, yes, there's evil menaces throughout the universe in all different shapes and forms, but to, you know, that was our, that was ours. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you can't help but be influenced. I mean, I, watch every Star Trek episode infinite, you know, just ugh, my eyes bled, but I love that, you know, so we loved all those things, but it's a, this is our universe and we populated it with things that we enjoyed and, and, and wanted to draw. Great page of, uh, we just, we just saw the Triceraton, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kind of, kind of car chase. Yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to point out that that's one of my favorite sequences on page, um, 26 where the Triceratons are in the, the flying harnesses pursuing the turtles. Oh, yeah. And one of them does this amazing arc thing where he, he comes back to the turtles' vehicle and he basically rips the engine out of it yeah. by, with his hand. It's so good. That, that's so freaking Kirby, man. It was like, he's like, <laughs> and you see like the, the thing reaching into a machine and, or a car and pulling out the engine or something. And that was, uh, yeah. that was, you know, so that's like, that's a great point, Pete, because it is like, that's the influence because you know you know it's like i remember we both laughed once it was some some scene where kirby drew a maybe captain america or something punching a guy punching a bad guy but punching his head through a wall <laughs> you know I mean? it was just like what that's crazy we have to do that so that would be so that kind of kirby like moment is something that when we had an opportunity to do this that's perfect it's like yeah he's gonna reach up and pull the engine out because they're so powerful that they can do that. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, the, the very next page here, uh, it feels like a Bob Kaniger kind, kind of moment, uh, because they land in the woods and Donatello's cracking up a little bit. It's, it's like a scenario in, you know, just grab any copy of GI combat and you'll see a guy who's, they call it shell shock, no pun intended right. ba back in those days. But, uh, it's another one of those, uh, bits of, vulnerability that you let us see with with these characters which is which is such an important piece of you know the joseph campbell hero's journey kind of thing yep it, it reminds me of what you were saying at an issue four where you see a turtle get injured and yeah. it really lets us know like oh the they're not invulnerable or immortal and this is dangerous yeah it, i mean in, in a lot of ways a lot of comics that come out now the creators forget that part. They love their protagonists sure. so much that they just have them do badass things constantly. Mm -hmm. But there's there's arcs to these stories. They're, they're incredibly incredibly well paced. I think we can blame Kevin for that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we we knew what we were doing at every moment. <laughs> well, you know what, man? I think you guys got your your copies <laughs> of issue four back when you have this uh, two page spread of of panels because you keep your lettering far away from the interior gutter. Mm -hmm. yep. I wish <laughs> I could say that was a plan. <laughs> yep. 
I think the layouts in this book are, are really great that, that Kevin did. Thank you. No, it's, and it's hard to imagine the setup. Like it's it's there's a lot going on here. Not because not like look at this now. We have to get the turtles onto their ship, and we have it has to be a believable thing. Yes. And then the ship takes off. Like pay, setting all of the, these bits up. Uh, you guys, you know, you guys hit your marks, put the books out, but then you don't set yourself up with easy stuff. Look at how great this is to show uh, these two panels in color. We have a color sound effect. It's about the same value as the top and bottom. It's almost could be one panel. When you look at the black and white version, you keep rumble white where it's clearly a gutter between the two panels. Yeah. Man, it works mm -hmm. great there. Yeah, I actually just stole this. I'm going to show you guys real quick. Not to plug my shit. <laughs> I had a little explosion happen, and there's the, the cop sound effect. Oh, and then that's nice. separate that top panel, bottom panel. No, that's great. That was I loved when they did that. Like I think... Uh... I remember it was, I forget who was the letterer on um, Walt Simonson's um, Workman yeah. Thor run, but there was a lot of great influences there that they, they used that to great effect. But the, you know, and when, when you look at, when I look back at this stuff, a, a lot of it was, um, it really was uh, flying by the seat of our pants in that, you know, we would have an idea and, 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 a, and, a, and a treatment would have, you know, th this is where we, we would like the story. This is where we need the story to go over for this issue. And then we'd um, kind of back into it. So you had to um, sort of create this kind of pacing where you could fit in the moments that you want um, to tell the story you want, but still, you know, not make it 200 pages, but it had to be, you know, something manageable because we were both still drawing it um, and get it out. So it's, um, the the mechanics of the approach to the storytelling were often mostly based on necessity of what needed to be shown of like when they going into out of space you know you we, the first time that's you know the panel on the left is with the first time you see this big space station and so we need to set up how important that is going to be to the triceraton world so you have to show that and then start putting in different pieces so it really is a combination of um necessity versus uh page count versus um you know making it interesting and i'm i'm making it sound like you know we knew more than we did when we were doing it but it was and i and i stressed the um seat of the pants and and just it it, it had to it, you it felt you had to feel it and that was it and and, and it and accomplished what we wanted to in, in the in the in the in the moments we did because it was always funny i mean much years later when people would point out like you know to a, a wide-eyed and bewildered me and and perhaps <laughs> pete at a show and then go i love the nuances you put on between page you know four and five of this issue because it looks like you were really studying you know the infrastructure of a blah blah blah, blah <laughs> joseph campbell and the philosophy of nietzsche and button were like what no i was trying to get us between page four and five and that was kind of <laughs> it you know um and so it was really kind of absorbing everything we loved about pop culture and our Jack Kirby and, and our isms, but then telling a story that we we wanted to see. And I guess that was that was you know there was that was the driving mechanism, and and um, you know because it I guess it just as easily could have sucked. <laughs> I, I, I think I think I just detected 
a possible Steve Levine OSHA uh, com complaint uh, on, on this two-page spread here. Because if he's in studio with you guys, I'm looking at these planets, right? <laughs> and that duotone was run through an airbrush. That Those chemicals Ooh. look like they were put through an airbrush to get that effect on those planets right there. Well, Pete did that way back on issue two, his cover on issue two. So he was the first one to experiment with... Uh, that those kind of effects with the um with the duo shade because that was that was really interesting and it was something that gave such a wonderful effect yeah was, uh, and zuli, zuli would uh do interesting stuff spatter and things but i just feel like that's not the stuff you want to breathe man yeah no you're probably right <laughs> well we were already drunk at the time so it didn't matter <laughs> um, i'm kidding of course but uh no i think that was um i think for for me, I mean, Pete had used the duo shade before and again, made the introduction to it and the options with it. And it was definitely a learning process of, yeah. you know, uh, you had to be very careful and precise in your inks because you really couldn't use that much whiteout. If you use the whiteout, it would, it wouldn't work with the duo shade, obviously. Right. Um, so you, the drawings had to be very clean and very precise. And if you were doing, um, or as clean and precise as we could make them, I should say. And if you were doing something with effects like, you know, I don't know what the hell we did with Michelangelo. The Christmas issue was like, it was like a whiteout blizzard the whole time, but it was, uh, but no, you had to be very specific with your whiteout effects on top of the work. Cause, um, cause it really affected what you did with the duo shade. Cause it was yeah. on the original, it was the original art. I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but I think one of our most important evolutionary steps in using duo shade was learning to do the light tone first and follow that with the dark tone. Because if you did the dark tone first, you'd end up with this thing that was almost unreadable. Yep. Because everything looks so dark. Right. I see. Hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, and it's like, and, and I still, it's like I still use it, and it's I still feel like I overuse it because it's almost like, uh, you know, um, it's a technique that you you have at your disposal instead of you approach it with like, oh man, I can't wait to just ah, dual shade everything. Um, but um, yeah, you have to really be. It took a while to get it, um, get the nuances, like Pete said, and start with the light tone. And then when you're going in with the darker tone, then you're specifically putting in uh, depths and shadows that you, you want, like um, some of the, the shadows you see in some of the, um, like the scenes of like a down shot on the page, just one page back um, with a, um, like that with a fugitoid and the triceratops. See, like, the whole shadow was done in duo shade and that's where you would utilize the dark tone to really bring that, that shadow out, um, in a way that, you know, gave that extra depth. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, uh, you know, I, again, kindly say that, you know, we were seat of the pants kind of, it went, we felt as it went and, uh, you know, uh, and, and it wasn't, you know, <laughs> did, did you guys ever get, uh, st stopped in your process when like, say for instance, you do the inks, first uh and then you make your xeroxes and things and now it's time to start putting some some duo shade on the board and then you go to grab your duo shade uh developers and then you see that there's no liquid in there and it's all just crystals at the top did it ever stop you in your tracks i, I don't remember anything like that happening i think we had enough material to work with all the time you know, he's Pete's right. In fact, that's you know how I still have um, the developer that I have is that they would, if I remember, um, they would send you if you ordered a 
say a package of the 17 by 22 sheets, they would send you for that package, they would send you more than enough plus extra of these two packs of developers um, for each set. So we would, we would save those, but you know, time to time, if they sit out, I've got some just sitting over here now that if, if you open and close them a few times if the seal's not quite um, as tight as it should be, um, you will notice a dark, the dark toner especially will will crystallize uh, quicker than the than the light tone but it's uh but yeah i you know it's a uh, i feel like the i think i probably got um 15 to 15 to 20 sets hmm. left that's amazing and that's it that's as far as i know that it does not you know it does not exist anywhere else and, we need uh, to get some walter white guy that's right to do some kind of chemical <laughs> analysis on that <laughs> And see what kind of Scotch guard we have to buy to fucking cook up on the stove <laughs> to just get that back in effect, you know? Like it can't it can't be that hard. Or you know what? I bet you, you could go to a patent office or something at this point if if they're you know, if that's lapsed or something. You could get some some idea, man. But once again, to be continued, our guys are in zero G. Yeah, mm-hmm. running out of air. You know, Pete you might remember, but that some of those kind of cliffhanger moments. I always feel like um, when I watched the when you know when I we watched the Empire Strikes Back, that was one of those cliffhanger moments that you just went like. And then you had to wait, you know, what, two years, three yeah. years before you got, you know, Return of the Jedi. But um, but it, we definitely went into this this arc, if I remember right, with a very specific. I don't think we might have said exactly how many issues, but I knew that it was. I think we we wanted it to go um, a number of issues um, yeah. before we brought them back to earth. So in large part, that was because we were having so much fun with it. Yeah. It's amazing. 100%. It's amazing. This is an unforgettable uh, little run within the series. Uh, and it does follow into uh, issue six and, and sort of f- finishes off in a, in issue seven, but may- maybe next time we uh, connect, man, we we could, we could cover, those couple of issues uh mm-hmm. because it is just such a pleasure going through these comics with kevin eastman and peter laird and hearing some of the stories about the tangential stuff that that went on uh sort of outside of the work that we see on the page uh, that, that we sort of know so well so i want to thank you guys so much for for your time for joining us uh here today uh kevin do you want to let the people know what you might have out uh, on the stands now or forthcoming well, I just, you know, um, first, thanks, guys, for uh, making all this possible, and, and especially to my, you know, brother Pete for, uh, um, these are really fun, and I'm having a really good time, and I and I love that we, you know, where we ended up um, ending on issue five, I think that uh, we'd be very excited to uh, um, um, come back and talk about six and seven, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of really, really fun stuff, and there's a lot of meat on those bones, because that was such a big moment of where we ended up at the end of issue at the issue end of issue seven so i look forward to um uh to doing that um uh, again as soon as you guys want and then you know for for me where um you want to find out uh we're, we're getting ready to start touring this year um 2023 so if you want to go to kevin eastman studios.com you'll find out where we're going um for conventions and signings and uh so that's um you know it's it's a it's, it's such a double-edged sword of um um, I love the traveling. I love going out. I love seeing the fans. Um, but it, the older I get, and Pete might 
side with me on this. I am starting to really hate leaving my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm there already. <laughs> um, but no, these these are an absolute blast, and I'm having a great time. And uh, but yeah, you know, and yeah, cool, here's, cool guys. Here's a question for you guys, man. Like, at what point do we do the episode that's like we look at Donatello and, and we look at Raphael? Like, uh, should that be two two from now? We should wrap up this story. With... Uh, hmm, good question. Yep. Something for yeah. us to talk about. Something for us to think about because we would love to to continue this conversation. Uh, it's it's such a illuminating um, conversation about the, this period of time, and it's great to get it on the record. So I want to thank you guys so much for coming by. Peter, do you want to? Do you have any appearances or anything you want to let the people know about? I have no nothing scheduled except for these conversations with you guys. He's going to, I think next he's going to be, be appearing in his kitchen eating a bagel or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no, I just like to say, um, you know, it'd be fun. And what's interesting, what you said about Raphael, Donatello, Michelangelo, because it's interesting that those are individual stories, standalone. The fourth one we did on Leonardo actually led into specifically Turtles 10 and 11. So it might be fun. Almost in those, the I Michelangelo see. and uh, the Raphael, and even the the wonderful um, Donatello, one of my all time favorite issues, um, a, a kind of great standalone moments. Because that might be something you could cover in one one session as those three. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just a, no, that's put a pen in it. Think about it. So. Totally, it's perfect. And then yeah, like with the Leonardo, that's where we got to like ask like. Where the heck did Steve Bissett come into the game? Because I remember seeing his name in the credits around yeah. there. Yeah, so much to talk about. Thank you guys so much. Uh, this is one of those examples, and I think there's a there's a Eastman one in here somewhere where like we get glimpses of like what your individual turtles look like. Uh, so so this is a Peter Laird piece. Mm -hmm. Love that piece. And that then was a cover later, yeah. That's great. And then here's a here's a Eastman. You know, it's just that background scenario. <laughs> Kevin, yeah. you know what this reminds yeah. me of? That that one great. Uh, Robert Crumb drawing where it's just a little guy and it's like the, the little man in my head. It's from the sketchbooks. Yeah. Where he's here like mm. wincing and there's just all this, you know, backstage technology like sort of all, all uh, surrounding him. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we did a, there's a really fun piece that uh, um, we did that ran on the back of one of the issues, I forget, uh, or maybe it was a different issue, but it was. It was called Mirage. Pete and I did this this wonderfully fictional drawing of um, Mirage Studios, where we, you know, had um, me sort of airbrushing uh, on an easel and Donatello's blowing air into the hose, and Pete's at his drawing board, and we put all this, you know, one of the one of the turtles had a remote control car, which we, we used to have back in the day, and it was just a, it was a studio filled with all of our goofy stuff and isms, and uh, I love that piece. I, it was called Mirage Studios, but I, I call it Turtle Boys. It was kind of <laughs> One place where people can see that, uh, we took a look at an interview you guys did in Comics Interview that was like, not your first interview, Turtles on the cover, for sure, and not, maybe black and white airbrushed, like kind of busting out of the page, you <laughs> see like Nexus Comics and stuff, but that image is a double-page spread in there to sort of introduce that interview, right. and I studied that. Yes. Endlessly, like all the little gimmicks you guys put in there, the the Jansen's history of art book is on the on the uh, uh, bookshelf, and the Xenomorph shows up one or two times. It's a very very cool piece. Uh, I don't want to keep you guys much longer. You were so generous with your time. Thank you for joining Cartoonist Cafe, and, and please let's do it again. Yeah, thanks guys. Look forward to it.